Well, thank you, Dave, and the Calvary Baptist team for the invitation to speak today. It's uh, particularly apropos and a pleasure to be here because, I don't know if you know, we're in the season of creation. So there is this actual ecumenical effort around the world to celebrate creation from September 1st to St. Francis Feast Day, which is October 4th. So we're right, right in the middle of that. The unceded traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, including Kwikwetlam, Stolo, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kekwat, First Nations. These people are among those who continue to steward these lands to this day. I just want to double check that we got that going. All right. I live at Kingfisher Farm, which is adjacent to the Tataloo, or the Little Camel River in South Surrey. And the 10-acre property has a pasture, it's got ponds, a forest, and it's been home to goats, chickens, ducks. Years ago, we had cows, and uh, about 25 people from seven households. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, the newest house on site was completed about eight years ago, and I'm confident it's a solid structure, despite the soil type and high water table, because I witnessed the whole construction. Even the parts you don't normally notice, like the foundation. My son, Jared, then seven years old, was fascinated with the whole process uh, of excavating the hole, constructing the forms, pouring the foundation. Now contrast that with that building with our about 100-year-old barn. The barn is great for concerts in the summer, particularly pre-COVID. And it has a lovely ambience, and occasionally there actually has been a barn owl checking it out, but it's got a foundation of logs, and those logs are now rotting to the point where the whole west wall is actually sinking. Floorboards are literally bending, sometimes to the breaking point, and we now must choose between an expensive repair to the foundation or a complete teardown. The moral of the story? A poor foundation puts the rest of the building in jeopardy. Well, the biblical story has a foundation that is often neglected or overlooked, with the result that our witness, our ethics, and our discipleship are regularly compromised. Let me illustrate. The Bible says that Jesus came to save souls, and thus that's the focus of all Christian discipleship. The Bible, and therefore Christian discipleship, has nothing to do with creation, the creation of art or the study of science. The Bible, and therefore Christian discipleship, has nothing much to do with the ecological problems facing our planet. Well, my contention is whenever these statements or others like them are affirmed by either our words or our actions, our lives, then it is a sign that the foundation of our biblical understanding is faulty, inadequate. It's like when the floorboards in the barn start to bend or when the door won't close properly because the frame is so out of whack. It's a signal that we've forgotten or ignored the implications of the fact that the biblical story is shaped like an hourglass. Of course, in the middle is one very particular person, Jesus. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension is the center of the biblical story, no doubt. However, 
we cannot fully appreciate the significance or the implications of the hinge point of God's work in history without the story of God's creation. The biblical arc begins and ends with the widest scope imaginable, all that exists. Moreover, if we have eyes to see, the creation-wide scope is consistently in view throughout the biblical story. Jonathan Wilson, an author and former prof at Cary Theological College just here in Vancouver, he wrote an entire book called God's Good World, describing why we need a fulsome understanding of the story of God's creation. He writes, I emphasize the necessity of always keeping creation and redemption together in our thinking, teaching, and living. Without creation, there is nothing to redeem. The work of redemption is empty of content. Without redemption, there is no creation. There is only chaos, emptiness, meaninglessness. He underscores that while the good news is utterly unimaginable, apart from the story of Israel and the coming of Jesus Christ, that gospel is cosmic in scope. So my contention is that at, that my contention is that that we cannot build an adequate structure of our Christian mission and witness, our life in Christ, without the foundation of God's creation. So, go with me on that for a moment. What is the story of God's creation then? Well, to answer this question, I'm going to make six brief points. Yes, they will be brief. It's okay. Creation, number one, creation is made by God. He made it all. The opening verse of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's no accident that the Apostles' Creed, one of the most universally accepted summaries of Christian faith, begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You'll note the use of a literary device called mirrorism here. When I search high and low for my car keys, I, am I saying that I checked to see if they were glued on the ceiling or underneath the bed? Well, not exactly. The use of merism conveys the sense of high and low and everything in between. Likewise, both Genesis and the Creed are emphasizing the totality of God's creative work. God made it all. Number two, creation is God's temple. Have you ever noticed how the description of creation in Genesis 1 is full of architectural language? It comes through more clearly in Hebrew, but you get a glimpse of it in the designation of spaces in the first three days. Light, separate from dark. Waters above, separate from waters below. Waters below, separate from land. And perhaps it's not so different from drafting a floor plan for a house. Let's put a wall here to demarcate the bedroom from the bathroom, and we'll put the kitchen island here to separate, like, the cooking area from the dining room. Well, Isaiah, in chapter 66, is even more explicit. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being? Creation is the dwelling place of Yahweh. And it sounds like God's pretty satisfied with the house, the temple he's built for himself. Now, while visiting a friend's home 
Have you ever thought to yourself, this place really says Sally or Fred or whoever? Everywhere I look, I see and touch and engage with things that remind me of her love for pottery and music, of how organized she is, of her obsession with Hamilton, the Broadway musical. Like, the point is that just like a house tells us something about its resident, so God's temple reveals his character. Consider Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Among many other things, in creation, we experience God's provision and creativity, his generosity and faithfulness. We learn of his vibrancy and his love of diversity. So, creation is God's temple. And in the ancient Near East, when, the, when Genesis was written, in that world, when you build the temple to a god, what's the last thing you put in the temple? The image of the God. So too in Genesis 1, where women and men are the final piece of the temple construction. We are created to be God's representatives within his temple. We are meant to reflect and convey his character to each other and to the rest of creation. Now, needless to say, there are major implications for how we live that follow. I mean, first of all, people-keeping. How do we treat the image of God in our midst? Do we love ourselves? Do we love other people? If we are living in the temple of God and we recognize in ourselves and our neighbors the spark of Almighty God, then extending love and dignity and respect to ourselves and to others is an element of worshiping God. How we treat others and ourselves reflects how we truly feel about God. Well, conversely, when I degrade myself or I disrespect other people, I'm not only sinning against them. It is, first and foremost, a rebellion against God's claim that each of us has divine likeness. Thus, the vision that heaven and earth is God's temple and each person bears God's image within that temple has far-reaching implications for people-keeping. But I'm going to assume that most of us are relatively familiar with those implications already, and explicating them further, that's kind of beyond the scope of this sermon. But the implications of this vision for earth-keeping are just as profound. To illustrate, say I'm a fan of Rembrandt, the 17th century Dutch painter. I study his works, I practice my skills, I seek to emulate his style, I confess my admiration and devotion, I even go to visit the Rijksmuseum in Holland where his paintings are displayed, I enter the building filled with anticipation, and then I pull out spray cans and a knife and proceed to vandalize the masterpieces. What? Clearly, destroying paintings is inconsistent with being an art lover. But it is just as clear that desecrating God's temple 
is inconsistent with our identity as bearers of God's image. In fact, it's as inconsistent as when we abuse each other and yet claim to follow God. The biblical fact is that we live in God's temple, and as a result, we are called to both people-keeping and earth-keeping. So number three, creation is very good. The biblical writers were experts at their craft, the Pulitzer Prize winners of their day, you might say. They knew how to communicate a message to their audience. For instance, the many repeated phrases in Genesis 1 is evidence of their skill, lacking bold or italics font. Repetition is one way biblical authors draw attention to the important bits. So, throughout the chapter, we read, and God said, and God said, and God said, and so on, followed by, let there be, let there be, let there be. Part of what this repetition emphasizes is God's awesome power. He creates the world with his voice alone. Wow! Astonishment is an appropriate response. Another repeated phrase in that chapter is, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. It's repeated seven times, which is numbers are another way biblical authors communicate. Seven has a particular kind of emphasis. And the last of those seven emphasizes it even further because it says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Tov miod. Here's my question. Does this last repeated phrase also highlight God's power? I don't think so. The text reads, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is not an exercise of, like, authoritarian rule. I decree it's good, and therefore it's good, and you better not argue with me. Rather, I think this is more like a painting or a sculpture working away than pausing to reflect. Ooh, that's good. And they work in some more, and they go, ooh, that's good. And then when finished, kind of stepping back and taking it all in, observing, and like, oh, that's very good. Of course, we expect creation to be good since it reflects the creator. Creation is characterized by abundance and vitality and delight and enough for all. That's because God is generous and kind and provides for everything he's made. Psalm 104 is an extended meditation on the way that God, creator God, not only built sufficiency and plenty into creation at the beginning, but his ongoing creative work continues to provide day by day. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. They give water to all the beasts of the field. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. In fact, we depend 
on the goodness of creation for our own thriving. Our health is inextricably linked to the health of the non-human creation. As such, one of the chief ways we experience the provision of God is through creation. Air, water, food, shelter, warmth, light. So creation is very good. But this is not to say it's perfect, at least in the sense of completed or finished. The work of creation in Genesis 1 actually culminates in Sabbath shalom. You'll notice that in the text, the seventh day is the only day that doesn't end. We're still in it. Rather, Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, we get this picture that the Sabbath shalom of God means that all things, God, human creatures, and non-human creatures, are rightly related to each other and mutually thriving. Now, a key part of this picture is women and men doing stuff. <laughs> We've got work to do. We have purpose. Unpacking our job description in detail is also beyond the scope of this sermon, but suffice it to say that according to Genesis 1 and 2, our task includes being fruitful and increasing and filling, ruling, subduing, naming, tilling, keeping. But all of this activity is done as we image our Creator. Now clearly, the Creator has tremendous power. But unlike other ancient Near Eastern gods, Yahweh exercises power and authority selflessly so that his creatures flourish. And we, as those tasked to demonstrate and spread the character of God within creation, are called to do the same. To seek the prosperity and vitality of God's creatures, human and non-human, people-keeping and earth-keeping. Therefore, while we depend on creation, through it, God provides our daily bread, it's also true that creation depends on us. A sculpture reveals or unlocks the potential for beauty latent within a chunk of granite. Well, similarly, when human creatures are rightly related to our creator, we will unveil more of the unrealized shalom potential embedded within creation. The potential for health and vibrancy and wholeness. The potential for life. So, the story of creation so far is that creation is made by God. Creation is God's temple. Creation is very good. Every good story has a but. But, creation is also groaning. Listen to the prophet Hosea, or frankly, the newspaper. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Rejecting God. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Mistreating people. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away, degrading creation. 
Rebelling against God's lordship is the root cause behind the abuse of human and non-human creation. Paul reiterates this idea in Romans 8. Here he writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to gay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul writes that the whole creation is groaning and that it is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Non-human creation is waiting for human creatures to do our job, to image God by caring for creation in the same way that God cares for us, with love and self-sacrifice. This is how we, and creation, are designed to flourish. The metaphor that comes to mind is the contrast between a well-tended orchard and an abandoned one. The first overflows with fruit and abundance, and the second is a tangled mess of wasted possibility. Nevertheless, because of God's faithfulness, the story of God's creation doesn't end here. The fifth aspect of that story is creation is loved by God. I'll illuminate this in a couple of ways. So first, do you remember the scene in Genesis 2 where God brings the animals to be named? We often observe the way in which the passage demonstrates God's care and provision for Adam after no suitable companion can be found. You may even have noticed how the highly meaningful, even parental, responsibility to name suggests the sort of caring relationship with creation to which God invites us. But, have you considered what the vignette might suggest about God's attitude towards his creatures? To me, the picture is like a six-year-old child, I'm remembering when my kids were much younger, that is excited to bring their prized stuffy or pet or hockey stick to show and tell at school. The child is overjoyed and brimming with excitement to display their treasured possession. Well, I imagine God in Eden being on tiptoes with anticipation. He's so proud of the strength and skill of the elephant and its multi-purpose trunk. And he can't wait to show it to someone able to appreciate it. I imagine God beside himself with excitement as he parades the chameleon and eagerly awaits the surprise of Adam at the fact that, yes, it really can change colors. And then I picture God's mischievous smirk <laughs> when Adam is trying to wrestle with the fact of a platypus. Like, maybe mashups aren't unique to the 21st century. The point is, God is thrilled with his creatures, and why shouldn't he be? They are marvelous. Plenty of other places in Scripture corroborate this claim. How about just one? Genesis 3, 16 and 17. The curious thing about this famous passage is that the word translated world in English is actually cosmos in Greek. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the cosmos to condemn the cosmos, but to save the cosmos through him. 
Even here, in a passage that, in the context of the chapter, is clearly focused on God reaching out to humanity through Christ, even here, we get a glimpse, this kind of peek in the window, of this much wider vision of a creator God that loves what he's made. Loves it so much, he'll do whatever it takes to bring about the Sabbath shalom he intends. So this brings us to the final aspect of God's, the story of God's creation. Creation is being redeemed by God through Christ. Given the way Christians usually speak about the gospel, it's no wonder. We usually think Christ's work of salvation is all about people. And well, it is certainly true that, Christ, that in Christ, everyone has a way to be reconciled with God. To stop there is to tragically truncate the gospel's repercussions. The ripples in the pond extend so much further. The fact that Creator God is working on a much bigger project is, project is evident throughout Scripture. For instance, recall the story of Noah in Genesis 6-9. Noah is first introduced as the one person who walked faithfully with God in a society rife with depravity and wickedness. And after the flood has receded and all the ark's passengers have disembarked, God makes a covenant. Famously, the rainbow is meant to remind us of this agreement. Now, you'll recall that throughout the Old Testament, God makes a series of covenants. Through them, through these covenants, Yahweh successively reveals not only his character, but his plan to recover what was lost due to human rebellion. And ultimately, all the Old Testament covenants are fulfilled by the new covenant in Christ. But the first one is made back in Genesis 9. Here's my question. With whom does God make this covenant? Later in Genesis, we read of God covenanting with Abraham. And in Exodus, he covenants with the nation of Israel. And later still, God makes a covenant with David. But in Genesis 9, with whom does God covenant? The heading assigned by the NIV editors reads, God's covenant with Noah. <laughs> I've got a real beef here. That depiction is not only misleading, it's downright inexplicable. The text actually reads, this is the sign, referring to the rainbow, of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. The covenant between me and the earth. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. I will see it, the rainbow, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. You get the picture. In fact, within ten short verses, six times, the text refers to God's covenant with Noah and all living creatures or all life on earth. How do we get covenant with Noah? Like, who are these editors? Clearly, the breadth of God's plan of redemption includes much more than people. Fast forward to the New Testament, Colossians 1. Here, Paul summarizes in no uncertain terms 
the scope of God's work in creation. All things, the Greek word tapanta, all things, there's nothing left out of that. Tapanta, all things were created by, or created through Christ. All things are sustained through Christ, and all things are being reconciled to God through Christ. God has not given up on his Sabbath shalom plan. Creator and image-bearing creatures and the rest of creation all in right relationship. Human rebellion knocks the plan off course, but because of Christ, the plan is back on track. So, to recap the story of creation, creation is made by God. Creation is God's temple. Creation is very good, but creation is groaning. But mercifully, creation is loved by God, and creation is being redeemed by God through Christ. Okay, so what? What difference does this all make? Well, I'm convinced the story of God's creation has profound implications for the Christian life, for people-keeping, but also for earth-keeping, caring for God's creation. I'll end this sermon with the opening lines from Jonathan Wilson's book. Here we go. Climate change, economics, sexuality, justice, gene therapy, bioethics, famine, energy use, diminishing oil supplies, alternative energy, violence, evolution, torture, incarceration, ecology, and so much more. All of these are urgent concerns for those of us alive in the early decades of the 21st century not only for ourselves, but also for those who will come after us. For Christians, all these concerns relate to our beliefs about creation. So, may God grant us his spirit of wisdom and discernment and compassion as we bring to our broken world the fantastically good news of his story. Amen. I'm now going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to invite my friend and colleague Sandra to come up and share a bit about the work of Arasha. She gets the fun part. I get to preach the Bible, you know, Bible. She gets to talk about Arasha. Um, Arasha means the rock in Portuguese. And we have this name because it was founded in Portugal in the early 80s by a couple named Peter Miranda Harris and... Uh, that's why it's Portuguese, the rock. And they went to Portugal to study birds. Peter loves birds. And they went there to study birds as Christian mission, which you can imagine that, whoa. But their mission agency said, yes, you go do that. And today, Arasha is a Christian conservation organization with operations in over 20 countries around the world. We seek the transformation of people and places by showing God's love for all creation. So in Canada, we have projects in BC, Manitoba, and Ontario. Um, and we study endangered species, we restore sensitive habitat, we teach people of all ages about ecology and caring for creation, we model small-scale sustainable agriculture that grows food in ways that actually builds soil and biodiversity rather than depleting. And throughout all that, we welcome others to join us in the work. 
So yesterday, I'm sorry this was yesterday because you kind of missed it. I didn't get a chance to kind of advertise. But yesterday was our big event of the year, the Harvest Festival. We had over 700 people. It was glorious. It was a beautiful sunny day. Come next year. It's, it'll be good again. Um, needless to say, working in this is uh, we welcome others because we, we think it's fundamental to, the, to being human to, to care for creation. So that's why we want to welcome others in. Uh, it was mentioned our colleague Stephen Shy. Steve had a huge role in, yesterday, in leading yesterday's event. Thank you, Steve, wherever you are. They uh, have a booth out in the back, so if you want to learn more, you can check that out. Or I'd also invite you, if any of you are interested in, hey, what can be done here at Calvary Baptist? I've got this uh, online monthly meeting going for other people who are trying to spark the work of creation care within their congregation, and these people come from across the country, and we get together and chat about it. So you'd be welcome to join in that. It happens every month. And of course, come to, I mean, you happen to be close to one of our centers, so come to Surrey and come for lunch and whatnot. I've had the privilege of working alongside Sandra now for many years, uh, and I'm always encouraged by the way her work so explicitly ties together people-keeping and earth-keeping. Her corner of the Russia world does that kind of, in some ways, better than anything else. So Sandra, come and tell us a little bit more about Farm to Families. Working? Sorry, I'm traveling with my water today because I'm just getting over being a little bit sick, but I'm good to go, and I'm really happy I'm here today. I was praying really hard that I would be well in time for Sunday, so um, prayer and miracles happen. <laughs> um, it's great to be here. My name is Sandra Dimitris. Um, I know many of you, I think. It's hard to see with the lights, <laughs> but it's a pleasure to be back. Um, it's a pleasure to be invited, so thank you, Pastor Dave, and I get to show you some photos of what happens in our program, give you a little bit of a vision to go with Rick's words, and also for some of you who've been following what is happening at Arasha with Farm to Families, which is the program I oversee, um, thank you. This is a little bit of an update, so we can get the PowerPoint going. Uh, and Shai is right there. <laughs> so now you know what Shai looks like, you can look for her at the booth. But I got involved with Arasha Canada because um, of all the joy it brought me as an intern. It was uh, unexpected, shocking amounts of joy getting my hands dirty and getting to know God in a different way. And so that's why I'm doing this. I want to share that joy, and it's, um, it's my key delight in being involved in this way. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Foreign Families partners with local nonprofit community service agencies and the Surrey School District, where we're based, to connect underserved children, families, and seniors to seasonal food, outdoor learning experiences, and positive relationships. Arasha started this program in 2009, uh, many years before I joined, and it started as a partnership with a newcomer service society called Umoja Operation Compassion Society in North Surrey, and it's still based there if you're curious. And the goal was very simple, to extend hospitality, share the beauty of the BC Centre, and break bread, literally, with families who are just finding their footing in Canada. And many of these families had farms back home, they had more farming experience than I will ever have in my life, and they missed these connections to the land. Since then, 
our program pillars have remained about the same, except with a range of community partners now. Um, I get to secure grants and donations to provide free of charge programming uh, for families and seniors who need it most. And this includes environmental and food literacy activities, hands-on training in gardening and cooking, and fresh veggie donations, along with um, fostering a sense of community belonging. So that's a little snapshot. So starting off with what, um, what I mentioned about our, the groups we serve, we support isolated seniors and families in building connections with others through cooking and gardening. And even during the pandemic, educators were able to provide phone-based and Zoom-based programming. And I am as skeptical as you, some of you may be as you're hearing this, but it truly worked. And the pandemic was a time when I truly saw what giving very humbly the little you have over to God means. It um, propelled us into more programming and more opportunities we didn't have before the pandemic. And I just encourage you to give what you have. That's really all I feel like we've done during the pandemic is go in faith next step. Um, in the next slide, you can see our volunteers harvesting for veggie donations. These two folks, Steve and Margie, have done this with a lot of love and enthusiasm since the first summer of the pandemic in 2020, and I really admire them for it. So this is a little idea of how you can get involved, if you like Steve and Margie. And the next photo shows a bit of our work with inner city Surrey schools and students identified as at risk for a number of factors. They visit our center for forest walks, they do cooking with us, and they marvel to see chickens and squirrels and tadpoles and fish, and uh, it's, it's insane, the string of exclamations that comes when they visit. And we were even able to modify these activities and continue the program during the pandemic and in visit individual schools. But of course, our preference is for the kids to be able to come out and really get the scope of the experience. Uh, many of them have never been on a forest trail, some from newcomer families, um, they come from countries where being in the forest is a little risky. They are poisonous species and they aren't sure how to handle their walks in the forest here. So that is new to some people. And some are very scared of getting dirty. Even more can't believe that vegetables grow in the dirt and have, they have deep concerns about it. <laughs> so many of you who really enjoy getting dirty as kids, this is shifting. People, I mean, kids are not as used to being dirty anymore. and. Nature deprivation is a very real thing, which has profound impact. If um, you were able to track with what Rick was saying, we were made to be in the dirt and experience God in that way too. So we're trying to get kids back to that. Uh, we have a photo of, a, of the kids petting chickens, which is a very, um, it's a very treasured highlight. And it's simple things, but they really awaken kids' wonder and, and thoughts and questions about where they are and their place in the world. And finally, I'd like to give you a glimpse into our work with newcomers. We offer weekly veggie donations for families, but we're aware that people need extra support to learn how to cook with new ingredients that are unfamiliar to them. So we have held regular ESL classes, which is so great if you know my background is in tutoring in ESL <laughs> to be able to do this. Um, we, we focus on building students' vocabulary and knowledge of local food. So th they are then empowered to make their own choices and voice their needs. And in the midst of the pandemic especially, this brought a lot of joy and levity and delight in the midst of very hard life situations. So uh, we'll, we'll just skip on over to the next slide where you see my car all loaded up and ready to go. Um, 
I, it's been taking tons of vegetables <laughs> around Surrey, and I just thought that would be a kind of a fun snapshot to show you. Along with this next photo of participant meals, uh, actually these newcomer families, we encouraged them to share what they've been cooking through a WhatsApp group. They all have uh, different language levels and they come from different ethnic backgrounds and for them to be able to share stories and recipes has been impactful. And then there's uh, a little blurb from someone who's never cooked with squash before and that was empowering and life-changing. So whenever you think you're just offering something small, like I said, it could actually mean a lot for somebody as they're getting settled into a new life and, and trying to find um, things that bring them joy. So I'll end with one of our favorite groups to partner with, which has been New Hope Community Services Society, and which many of you know and love, which is a great tie-in. New Hope provides housing and support services for refugee families as they transition into life in Canada. They own and operate a 13-unit apartment building in Surrey, BC, about half an hour away from our center by car. And they partner with community agencies like us to help refugee families access resources they may need. So Mindy and I first connected about doing a one-off program together in fall 2020. And since then, we've actually collaborated on growing, preparing, and sharing a lot of food out of this tiny little garden at the back of the building. And these visits for our staff and interns have cemented our relationship to the New Hope kids, adults, and staff in beautiful and expected ways. So we have a photo of harvesting beans and garlic from a very unassuming little garden that yields a lot once you put some love in it. And then the next photo after that, you can see the garlic and the garlic bread that, that followed. And the kids were truly shocked that they grew that much garlic and that none of it came from the store and we could make all these nice things with it. Um, there are beet pancakes on the left, so I mean on, on your yeah, left, so you can ask me for a recipe if you're curious. And at this point, you may be wondering why we focus so much on food. Um, there is a lot of food in the Bible, which I love because I love eating food. I love reading about food in the Bible. I love seeing how it connects people. And it's a truly incredible bridge builder, in my opinion. It connects us to each other even when language fails us. Uh, it gives us something to give and to nurture and to extend um, health to someone. And it meets these vital physical needs but also needs for familiarity, home, celebration, community. It connects us to the earth and the miraculous ways that God sustains our soil and seeds to produce incredible bounty. It connects us to farmers who are people like us and need safe, dignified working conditions. It connects us to the whole ecosystem as biodiversity loss and water scarcity have major repercussions on us all. Perhaps I can explain the connections better through this thank you note that I received a while back from a senior I never met, but who regularly received our vegetable donations through a partnership with Brella uh, Community Services. Dear friends, thank you for sending me the lovely veggies. It is so much appreciated. To me, it seemed like someone cared out in the world enough about me to try to help. I just had a knee replacement two months ago and the pain has been horrendous. I also have had the awful news that my brother in the UK has died. It has been so hard. You helped me to feel someone cared about me. And I was shocked to receive this letter because it said so much in so few words and it was humbling too because all we did was um, get these veggie hampers ready for like 50 seniors, senior households and they would get delivered, dropped off, so I didn't meet many of the seniors. And yet that was so impactful, so again, bringing your loaves and fishes I encourage you to do that. Um, 
And I will end this message by encouraging you to join us in this work by being thoughtful about food and the ways of sharing it and even growing it. Maybe you can pass down your skills to someone who doesn't know how to tell a carrot apart from a parsnip. They're out there. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> or perhaps you can go to the store with a newcomer neighbor and help them figure out the unfamiliar food landscape before them. Or you can encourage those in your life to reconnect with God in the midst of forests and gardens and go on walks together to see more of his character and goodness. Whatever your work looks like, I do pray God's blessing on it and that he will bring forth fruit. Thank you for your support. <laughs>